Hello and welcome to episode 90 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. We are covering June 2021, which feels a little bit unreal because at the time we're recording, the Nationality and Borders Bill had just landed and we're going to ignore that and cover it next month instead. Um, When I say we, I am joined as ever by CJ McKinney. We've got a few points about the EU settlement scheme to cover this month. We've got a couple of cases on family immigration and one on long residence. We've got a few asylum issues, a couple of deportation cases to touch on, and a couple of cases in which the Court of Appeals schools the Immigration Tribunal in how to do its job. So if you want to claim CPD points for um, sort of listening to the podcast and reading the material, then you can sign up as a Free Movement member at www.freemovement.org.uk slash training. And um, there's loads and loads of training there, basically, if, you, if you're interested in that kind of thing. Right, CJ, over to you. Thanks, Colin. We'll start with the EU settlement scheme. The main deadline for that was, as is well known, the 30th of June 2021, and the focus now switches to what happens to people who have missed that deadline. We've done a big briefing on that subject, which draws heavily on the last episode of this podcast when I spoke to Chris Ben from Surface. The kind of TLDR long story short is that you can apply after the deadline, so long as you have reasonable grounds to do so. And in the short term, uh, there's a sort of bonus flexibility that you'll be given the benefit of the doubt when it comes to whether or not there are reasonable grounds. So if you apply today, you'll you'll probably just be waved through the door. However, merely making a late application doesn't give you any particular legal protections is, is the important kind of downside. So if your late application is successful, then you're fine from that point on. But if you are a new citizen who has missed this deadline, you, you have no idea that there's an issue. And on the 1st of August, you apply to rent a new house, start a new job, claim benefits for the first time. You'll be told, no, can't help you. Maybe you should go away and apply for settled status. And you know you might do, that, do so the same day. But if it takes, for example, until the 1st of October to get a decision, a few months, during that period, you still won't be able to move house or get a new job or make a new benefits claim. So a bit of a mixed picture, I would say. Uh, what would you say, Con? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I, I think we should say there's, um, there is some disagreement, actually, about um, the status of somebody who's made a late application. Certainly what, what you say there is that's the UK interpretation and that's what we see in the domestic law and regulations. Arguably, the withdrawal agreement can be read as requiring the UK to protect somebody from the moment they make a late application. Um, But the withdrawal agreement isn't directly effective. It it doesn't have any sort of force of law by itself. So it has to be implemented. I think the EU is is sort of in dispute with the UK about this at the moment. I don't know how sort of uh, aggressively or or whatever, but there there could be an issue about that in future. Um, You know, we're in a situation where there's there's been a huge backlog in decision-making from the Home Office. Um, There's some people who applied months and months ago and are still awaiting decisions. There's been a massive last-minute rush of applications just before the deadline as the publicity sort of really kicked in and people realised they didn't have any longer to go. Um, And so if you have made a late application, presumably you're at the back of the queue and, um, you know, there is a real problem with the time that it's going to take before that happens. Now, that's not to discourage people from doing that. Obviously, you really do need to apply. Um, people need to be encouraged to apply and get those late applications in if they haven't already. 
Um, but there are some some real problems here. And that the but before we move on to the next thing, and the the other issue I've been banging on about is that um, you know the Home Office says it's going to be generous. Um, that there's all this kind of policy stuff they're talking about where benefits won't be cut off straight away. And and to be fair, the government does control some aspects of this. So benefits is something that's generally speaking within the government's control. Although you could still get you know benefits officials at local offices acting in ways that um that the home office doesn't sort of direct if you see what i mean um getting these officials to actually apply the law is not always straightforward um but of course it's it's not always just government officials who apply all this stuff it's the the hostile environment means that it's landlords employers and others um the nhs you know as administrators and so on who are checking um checking status papers and they are encouraged to be overzealous and you know the, the home office can say or oh, be nice to people but it doesn't control all of these other sort of third parties so um, I think it's likely we're going to see some pretty significant problems up ahead, and they, they, there's not there's no sort of Armageddon as such. You know, on the first of first of July, it's not that all of this suddenly became really obvious and everybody's life was suddenly a nightmare. But it, there's going to be a sort of drip, drip, drip over time. Um, I, I imagine. I hope that doesn't prove to be the case, but that's that's certainly what I I fear. No, it's a good point because you know in the briefing we highlight all the guidance and where it says you to be nice to people and where it says you to give people 28 days to apply if they haven't but you know we're familiar with the right to rent guidance and we can check page 43 or whatever or, as you say expecting every landlord and employer in the country to be familiar with these nuances is is a different matter i think there was some reporting to that effect recently but we'll see let's go on to look at a high court decision about the settlement scheme which uh, came down not long before this deadline basically finding that the settlement scheme unlawfully excluded a certain category of potential applicants. These are Zambrano carers, very loosely speaking, undocumented single mums with British kids. And as a result of this ruling, they may now be able to apply to switch from their sort of Zambrano status, which doesn't lead to settlement, to the EU settlement scheme, which does. And I imagine that, you know, this ruling was handed down so close to the deadline that late applications from Zambrano carers might be looked upon favorably. The case is Akin Sanya 2021 EWHC 1535 admin. Nat Gabikpi wrote up the case first, and she's also done some really valuable analysis on the pros and cons of Zambrano carers making this switch to the settlement scheme because there are potential downsides as well as upsides. So have a look on the website for her analysis, really important for anyone with Zambrano carers as clients. Yeah, it's, it's not a big group of people, but this is profoundly important to, to them. And it's just it's one of those areas of immigration law and policy where the Home Office just seems to be nuts, basically, because they've got a real problem with the idea of a Zambrano carer um, in the first place, and then also them sort of achieving settlement in the long term. And the idea that they're sort of storing up problems for themselves by making these people illegal further down the line, um, denying them settlement rights when they've been here for years and years. And it's just like, I, I don't understand what the point is. Uh, it just seems like this kind of uh, sort of bee in their bonnet where they, they're, they're really obsessed with this stuff for no, no obvious reason. Other settlement scheme news, we have written a lot about the issue of absences from the UK because, long story short, lengthy absences from the UK can mean the people who have pre-settled status are left unable to upgrade from pre-settled to the full settled status. The Home Office did publish a policy at the end of last year saying that absences due to coronavirus would be 
okay in some circumstances, but didn't allow that much leeway, not that generous a coronavirus policy. But now, as of the 10th of June, there's a new policy, and it basically says that any absence, even vaguely related to coronavirus, can be excused so long as it's not more than 12 months. So in those circumstances, you don't jeopardize your right to upgrade. And on top of that, longer absences above 12 months can also be excused in more limited circumstances if you couldn't come back to the UK on account of travel restrictions or or maybe on medical advice. So that is a positive step. Yeah, that's good news. I mean, it, it's another example of um, sort of self-harming behavior effectively from the home office where they're sort of storing up problems for themselves in future. The whole pre-settled status thing just creates another deadline five years or so down the line for a whole bunch of people. A load of people are going to forget to apply. They don't have like a passport or something, you know, proper piece of paper with with the date in it that's an easy reference point. I, I don't know about you, but I, I rely on my passport and the date in it for when I know I need to renew it. And, you know, the idea that you got some email from the home office somewhere or, or you printed out the, the letter, it's just it's just not equivalent, is it? So there's a load of people going to miss the, the, the deadline for upgrading to settled status. And then there's also going to be a load of people who it turns out they're not eligible to apply and they're either going to have to leave the country or um, or, or become illegal if the rules remain as they are, um, because they've been outside the UK for too long in the intervening period. It doesn't mean it's, it's quite complicated to explain to people. They won't have lost their status. They won't have lost their pre-settled status, but they'll have lost the right to upgrade to settled status, as you said. And that's that's quite hard to sort of get across to people and to, to sort of policymakers. What's actually going to happen there? Let's go to family immigration. A couple of cases there. The first case seems to drive a coach and horses through the seven-year rule for children. The family in question are from Bangladesh. The parents were long-term overstairs here. They had a couple of children born here, the oldest of whom is now 11 and has never left this country, uh, but wouldn't be a British citizen because uh, the parents weren't uh, settled. The family applied to regularize their immigration status, relying on this seven-year rule. Children who have lived here for at least seven years should be granted permission to stay if it would not be reasonable for them to leave. And the Court of Appeal in this case basically says it would be reasonable to expect this family to leave, which kind of raises the question, as Karma wrote in her write-up, well, if this 11-year-old who's never set foot in Bangladesh can reasonably be expected to move there, who exactly does qualify for the seven-year rule? Who does it protect, if not this family? The citation for this case, NA Bangladesh 2021 EWCA Civ 953. Yeah, it's a terrible, terrible case. And really, unfortunately, it's unnecessary as well, because I think I don't think Khan mentioned in the write-up, but I think it's in the judgment, the child is actually a British citizen now, um, because um, the child was born in the UK and had been resident for 10 years and therefore could be registered. Um, so, you know, it, it's even worse. The court says it's reasonable for a child to leave who actually was entitled to and later became a, a British citizen. And it's just, you know... I, and to be fair to the court, I suppose, that, and the problem here is the rules. A word like reasonable is, um, it's quite a nice word I've come across recently, protean. It doesn't really mean anything. You know, it means whatever you want it to, uh, alternatively. And um, it certainly isn't a robust legal protection in any way, shape or form. Um, and it's just, it's one of those cases that really wants you, you know, you, you, you just want to put your head in your hands, basically. It's, uh, it, it's a bit of a disaster and, um, and it, it's really bad. So that's what that's that's, that's my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see if it is fixed in a future court of appeal decision. Time will tell. Let's look at a different case on adult dependent relatives. 
So if you have an elderly parent abroad, can they come live with you in the UK? Extremely often the answer is no, even if you can support them financially. And this case really just reinforces that long-standing position. So the family here had their old mum come visit from Pakistan, as she often did. She ends up staying on as there's nothing left for her in that country. I think all her family lived here and her house had burned down. So eventually they applied to get her permission to remain uh, not an application for permission to enter as an adult dependent relative as maybe we more usually see but permission to remain outside the immigration rules relying on human rights the familiar article 8 and the court of appeal says no you wouldn't have qualified for permission to enter under the rules so you can't then make your way in and apply for permission to remain to sort of circumvent the rules basically that's my my paraphrase perhaps unfair so uh, no joy with that approach to adult dependent relatives that case mobine and secretary of state for the home department 2021 ewca civ 886 yeah it's um it's not a surprising case in a way i mean it, i think um I, I agree with um bill alb's write-up of this that the um the finding that there was no family life was a surprise should we say and it's good that the court of appeal stomped on that um, but the the final outcome isn't a surprise, and, and you were saying in the last segment about um, you know perhaps this will be fixed in future with the um, um, reasonableness thing. Well, both of these judgments are Mr. Justice Underhill, I think, or at least he's on the bench for both of them. Um, he's the kind of Mister Fix It in the Court of Appeal who's been looking at like deportation rules previously and trying to sort of make some sense of them and reinterpret them. So I think the this is the rules being fixed, sadly. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't hold out too much hope of uh, future developments on um, reasonableness unless it goes up to the Supreme Court. Let's look at long residence. We have the latest in a series of decisions on the impact of overstaying in long residence cases. So this is where you can settle in the UK on the basis of 10 years continuous lawful residence. The argument in this case was well, what if you don't quite make it to 10 years? You've a bit of overstaying at the end of that period. Does that still count? Uh, the upper tribunal says no. 10 years means 10 years. The case is Wasim and others versus Secretary of State for the Home Department, Long Residence Policy Interpretation 2021 UK UT 146 IAC. And in fairness, it wasn't all that ambitious an argument in the sense that we know from the previous cases in this series that if you overstay during the 10 years, that can sometimes be overlooked. And um, what this case says is, is that so-called open-ended overstaying at the end of the 10-year period is, is a different kettle of fish. Yeah, I, 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 it's quite interesting. I, I, I haven't been terribly optimistic about some of the arguments that have then gone on to succeed in previous cases. So um, I don't want to make any predictions on this one. You know, the idea that the um, the tribunal says no is um, you know one with which we're familiar, and it's kind of like um, the analogy that comes to mind is sort of De Gaulle and and UK applications to join the uh, the then EEC. And um, yeah, it's no surprise that the tribunal says no, of course. Um, but perhaps this one will go up to the Court of Appeal and be overturned as well. I don't know. My preferred historical analogy is Ian Paisley says no until eventually he says yes. Uh, moving to asylum, we have no less than three High Court decisions to discuss. The first is probably very well known to people already. It's the Napier Barracks case. The High Court held that asylum seekers were unlawfully held at the former military site in Kent. Among other things, the law says that asylum accommodation must be, quote-unquote, adequate to the needs of the people being accommodated, and Napier Barracks very much was not adequate given the fire risks and the COVID risks. 
much more to the judgment than that. It's 385 paragraphs long, but uh, people will probably have come across already. The citation 2021 EWHC1489 admin. But Colin, like, despite the ruling, despite all the hype, I think as of today, Napier Barracks is still open. Yes. And, you know, it's it's possible to see it staying open or at least equivalents being open. I think there is some sort of um, time limit possibly on it in a couple of years time or something. I, this is getting ahead and we're, we're covering the bill next month. But, um, you know, the, there are provisions in the bill that suggest that this kind of camp style accommodation is here to stay, uh, whether it's at Napier or somewhere else. But the thing that I just, I really struggle to get my head around, even after, you know, 20 plus years of dealing with the Home Office and various Home Secretaries, is that it was thought appropriate for people to be put in dormitory accommodation in the middle of a pandemic. And, uh, you know, it's just so obviously a really, really bad idea. Um, And, you know, Patel lied about it and I, i'm reluctant to sort of say that about politicians it's kind of overused accusation but you know she she said that um that, that they'd followed guidance from public health england and you know, actually the guidance from public health england was that this was a really bad idea that the thing is that going forward there won't be a pandemic or at least it'll be more managed or whatever it is um and um and those kind of objections to um dormitory style accommodation and so on fall away um, and of course, we've been here before. My, my first job in immigration asylum work was um, at the Oakington Barracks um, near Cambridge in 2000, where I was doing in-house legal advice um, for asylum seekers then. Um, you know, it, it looks like we're going back to that kind of um, um, style of things. But um, and I, w- I would say before we move on, and there was a difference. And the Oakington situation, and it was clean. It was sanitary. There wasn't a pandemic. Um, that has not been the case with Penale and, and, and Napier. Returning to our cases, there's another one which, again, I suspect people working in the asylum sector will already be familiar with. The High Court has overturned an asylum support tribunal ruling, which had basically said that all failed asylum seekers must be housed for the duration of the pandemic. This is uh, Secretary of State for the Home Department versus First Tier Tribunal Social Entitlement Chamber 2021 EWHC 1690 admin. So the tribunal had found a few months back that for human rights reasons, there was a positive obligation on the government to give people housing at least until lockdown is fully lifted later this month in maybe 10 days' time. The High Court said, no, that was wrong. That kind of blankus ruling misunderstood the human rights obligation. So I think this affects refused asylum seekers who are making an initial application for support. The kind of normal accommodation rules now apply to them again, whereas those already being supported should remain protected from eviction by a different ruling, uh, at least for the time being. Briefly then, a couple of other asylum cases. Victims of human trafficking are entitled to about 40 quid a week to support dependent children. That is, unless they have claimed asylum as well, in which case they don't get 40 quid. Uh, It's a weird anomaly. The Home Office couldn't even remember how it came about, which made their job defending it in court rather difficult, and the Home The High Court has now granted a declaration that this is unlawful discrimination against the cohort that don't get this money for the kids. Citation RMD and Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2021 EWHC 1370 admin. Next then, a really important case for Tamils from Sri Lanka who are seeking asylum here, a new country guidance decision from the Upper Tribunal. So obviously required reading for people with Tamil refugee clients. Uh, in particular, it focuses on surplus activities, which I believe means things that 
Tamils might do in the UK that would then put them at risk of harm if they were to return to Sri Lanka, protests and such. But also, according to this case, things like social media activity might bring someone to the attention of the authorities. A lot to the judgment, Colin, I think you have some thoughts on it. Uh, let me just give the citations. KK and RS, Surplus Activities Risk Sri Lanka CG, 2021 UKUT 130 IAC. Yeah, it's a really welcome judgment. I mean, on the face of it, um, if you sort of look at the adjustment to the the headnote of the previous case, the GJ case, it doesn't look like that big a deal. But actually, if you drill down into it, it really is. And there's much more recognition in this of the risks to Tamils who are in the UK um, and the interest and capability of the the Sri Lankan government in in sort of targeting people and keeping. Um, Tamil separatism suppressed, you know, having having won the war against the LTTE, um, the Sri Lankan government isn't keen on on having to fight it again or allowing that kind of thing to, to revive. And so, you know, there the, are the all sorts of um, repressive measures in place. So it, it's quite it's quite an interesting case. And it, it also grapples with the, the HJ Iran issue of um, what about somebody who's active in the sort of separatist diaspora here in the UK, campaigning for that kind of thing here in the UK? Uh, if they were to be sent back to Sri Lanka, even if there wasn't um, a risk from their activities in the UK, what would happen to them if they expressed those views um, in Sri Lanka? And that they'd be in a lot of trouble, basically. And this is a really interesting issue in refugee law, I think. You know, the extent to which the Refugee Convention protects you from putting yourself in harm's way by expressing your political opinions, your religious beliefs, um, you know, your personal identity, uh, sexual, sex, sexuality or whatever. Um, so and that's, that's a sort of really meaty issue. I think um, you know, perhaps we're seeing a little bit of a changing of the guard at the upper tribunal as well. And so I think it's possible to detect a bit of a change in approach from the kind of previous generation of judges that decided um, previous cases and a sort of slightly more modern, um, up-to-date approach with cases like this. So yeah, in- interesting development and very welcome um, for for Tamils who who do believe in in a sort of separate Tamil homeland and who have been campaigning for that. Final few cases to cover. Then the Court of Appeal has been looking at the role of the Immigration Tribunal. First of all, reminding the Upper Tribunal that its job as an appeal jurisdiction is to identify errors of law in decisions of the first tier tribunal and not to just look at the case again and substitute its own view, its own opinion on what should happen. You would think that's a point that's been made often enough by the same courts about the same tribunal uh, sufficient times, but here we are again. Uh, the case is AE Iraq 2021 EWCAC 948. Yes, I see that we've revived the tribunal overturned again tag, um, which which at one time got a lot of use. And I, th- I think um, it's been in abeyance in, in more recent times, but uh, rightly revived for this one. Another Court of Appeal case then looks at the role of tribunals in weighing up expert evidence. It just makes the point that judges are perfectly entitled to reject an expert report if, if it's flawed. In this case, it was a report about conditions for distance in Zimbabwe criticized in various ways and the court of appeal just says look the tribunal can go behind expert conclusions scrutinize them are they logical are they up to date are they supported by the facts in the report that kind of thing so probably a useful case for the home office really uh, the citation ms zimbabwe 2021 wca civ 941 
yeah, it, it's not a very surprising proposition, frankly, <laughs> the idea that the tribunal can reject expert evidence. So it's a bit of a surprise that it needed to be said by the Court of Appeal. I sort of wonder if there was something else going on in, in this case that isn't necessarily reflected in the judgment. But um, yeah, it, it, it obviously, it's a, it's a pretty basic point that the tribunal is not bound by expert, expert opinion. Finally, then deportation. And there's a case we looked at on rehabilitation and whether that can help people to avoid deportation. The short answer from the case, probably not. So this uh, chap had convictions for class A drug possession. He had to show there were very compelling circumstances to win his appeal against deportation. Since getting out of prison, he'd given talks to children as part of community outreach work don't do drugs, kids, kind of stuff, I imagine. But the Court of Appeal found that this kind of positive contribution to society, while it may be a factor in this very compelling circumstances decision, it's not likely to be of much significance by itself. That case, Yellow and Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2021, EWCA 788. Yeah, it's um, it's a shame. This I, mean, I don't think it changes the law, and I think um, I, I don't think it was considered to be particularly strong sort of factor previous to this to this case. Um, but it's a shame to see you know if, if you are in this position, if you have committed offences, you do face deportation. Then um, you know the 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 sort of upshot of this is well, there's no particular point in doing good works or or rehabilitating yourself um, because um, it's certainly not going to help you with your deportation stuff. And do it for you know because you're a nice person or whatever, by all means, but it's not going to help you with your immigration stuff. So um, it, it's not very um, it's not very far-sighted, perhaps, in, in that sense. Perhaps not. The final case then is about deportation protections for EU citizens specifically. So if the government is trying to deport you as an EU citizen on the basis of a crime committed before the 1st of January 2021, then the whole panoply of EU law deportation protections still apply. And there's been a series of pretty involved cases on what exactly is the scope of those protections. Ian Halliday has ably tackled them for us. I think he may be the only person who understands them properly. The latest case is about notice of deportation. So this is a preliminary document issued to EU citizens before the formal deportation decision. And the question for the court was, is a notice of deportation a deportation measure? And if it's a measure it will be subject to kind of stringent safeguards before it can be issued. The High Court says, is the measure? It depends. Uh, maybe it doesn't sound that helpful, but uh, in a previous case, a different judge had found that the notice of deportation was not a measure. What the court is saying now is that that finding doesn't apply universally. It'll depend on the case. So in some cases, these notices are subject to these kind of strict EU law safeguards. In that case, Costea, 2021, EWHC 1685 admin. Yeah, and Ian's covered at the, the end of that post about why we are actually still talking about EU law, because it sort of still applies in some circumstances for some people. Um, so it does it does have some ongoing relevance. But um, you know, in future, EU citizens who commit crimes after 1st of January 2021 are subject to UK deportation law, which is not um, chock full of safeguards, I think we can say, um, and and you know things like rehabilitation, as we've just seen as a second ago in the last segment, um, don't really have any value, whereas they do um, to some extent in in EU law. So it's going to be quite a different 
deportation regime. And um, again, there's no kind of Armageddon that immediately takes place. It doesn't become obvious what the, the, the sort of long-term effects of um, the, the changing regime is, but we're going to see a drip, drip, drip of EU citizens who um, have either been born here and not acquired British citizenship or who've been brought up here um, don't know the country that their, their parents come from and whose nationality they hold and who face deportation in quite hard circumstances. And that's that's just going to be a future of a feature of of um, immigration law going forwards. Right. Okay. That's it for us this month. Goodbye. <laughs>